Don't give me that kind of bull. I know it's a long shot, but then wild goose chase, what is? Remember when Commander Powell found that 99-plus probability of intelligent life in Magellanic Cloud? Well, I, there's a possibility of... Remember what we found? A damn mindless vegetable looked like a limp balloon. 14 light years for a vegetable that went squawk and let it think when you touch it. Remember that? All right, then. Uh... Don't give me any of that intelligent life stuff. Find me something I can blow up. Episode 34 of the Cult of Matt and Mark Cult Film Review Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Mark. And this week our film is Dark Star, released in 1974. Uh, John Carpenter's directorial debut. He uh, produced it, um, written by John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon. And we'll talk. Dan O'Bannon. We'll talk about Dan O'Bannon. I love that name, Dan O'Bannon. Dan O'Bannon. I never actually. I don't think I actually ever said it aloud. But now that you mention it, it does have a little bit of sort of a sing-songy. 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 That's a good word. Mm. Um, Oh yeah, and make sure to visit us at our uh, website, cultfilmreview.blogspot.com, and we can be emailed at cultfilmreview at gmail.com. Yeah, I know we're late. Stop sending us emails. Come on, man. We can't, yeah, can't respond I mean, to all of them. Really, the, the, the email volume has been ridiculous. Redunculous. So, redonculous. I've, uh, oh, it's donk, not dunk? Redonculous got... Sounds, donk sounds better. I don't know where what even that comes from. There's like a donkey part of the redonculous. I don't know. Oh, it's a plant. Well, I don't know. I'm I don't, behind on my urban culture. Time to go to, to, to urbandictionary.com and figure that one out. Um, so Darkstar, uh, let me do the plot rundown here real quick. In the middle of the 22nd century, mankind has reached a point in its technological advancement to enable colonization of the far reaches of the universe. Armed with artificially intelligent thermostellar triggering devices, the scout ship Darkstar and its crew have been in space alone for 20 years on a mission to destroy unstable planets which might, which might threaten future colonization. They've only experienced four years, though. They've only experienced four, and... When they're talking about jumping around places that are like 14 light years of the yeah, map, the, dis- the distances up. don't make sense. They talk <laughs> about time, and they talk about they're uh, in the Magellan Magellanic cloud, Ma- Magellanic cloud. The Magellanic that's one of those like little mini orbiting star clouds that orbit the Milky Way. The, I thought the Magellanic like, it's, like, it's like off the it's uh, off the it's off of its, it's disk it's like, of it's rotation like atop the disk. There's like these little there's like balls of stars that sort of orbit. The Milky Way, and that's one of those. Yeah, that's and just an insane distance. And, and they're talking about their communications taking forty years. Yeah, they're hardly to the nearest red dwarf. Uh, well, yeah, Alpha Proxima is at our closest star. It's like four light years away. Yeah, so they've been out for ten years, which means that they could have in that time. They well, were they go- talk about the communication taking forty years. Don't yeah, they? Uh, ten years. I thought I don't remember. Uh. They get like a a, a little uh, playback. At the beginning. And it's funny because they talk about getting supplies to, out to them. Sorry, yeah. we didn't get... Well, how would they get the supplies out to well, them? Well, I don't think... I mean, they, they pretty much said that they can travel faster faster than relativistic speeds. Oh, they can. Oh. I think so because okay. oh, we're, we're already crapping all over the uh, That's plot all right. summary. That's all right. Well, why don't you finish up the plot summary? That was kind of it. Um, all right. Yeah. I mean, um, it doesn't... It's a, it's a, it's a pretty thin uh, premise. 
Well, I'll say this much. I've, I've uh, actually, this is kind of one of my things since I did take relativity in. Uh, well, look, it's like it's not, uh, it's not rocket science. It is kind of rocket. Well, it's relativistic. It's relativistic celestial mechanics, which. But you uh, can get some take-home things, some rules of thumb you can use. Well, right? I mean, I took relativity when I was in school, and relativity you have to do uh, Lorentz transformations for time and space and special relativity is is uh sort of what's the right word a downgraded version of the general relativity theory which just is basically deals with time and space dilation but it's not simple math i mean the thing is is that as you go faster your reference time slows down Mm -hmm. until you actually go with like 0.9999 the speed of light and then basically the universe surrounds you uh, slows down to minuscule negligible, or is that right? No, your time frame slows down mm-hmm. to minuscule negligible amounts of time. It's like a photon that's traveling in a perfect vacuum doesn't experience any time. Exactly. Only yeah. when it interacts, like with a gas or something, does it slow down. Right. Like, to a so when you have like radioactive particles that are traveling near the speed of light, not at the speed of light because they have mass, but uh, near the speed of light. Their decay is dilated. It takes longer for them to radioactively decay mm. because of their speed. From your frame of reference. From your frame of reference. Yeah. So, so that's that where it actually. Same, right? Yeah, that's where it actually functionally comes into play. Yeah. But when you're talking about. It comes about, into play a lot in like a, the GPS system has to take. I mean, it's like it would, without taking into account uh, general relativity, it would break down in a few seconds, I think. Yeah. That's All true. the clocks would become unsynced, and you'd lose your reference. So I forgive uh, John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon the uh, the sloppiness of their relative. It's really sloppy. <laughs> I mean, the distances don't make any sense. Well, and it would be um, oh, they did. Did they know the distance of the Magellanic Cloud when this was made? Uh, they knew how big the galaxy was, and they knew that the Magellanic Cloud is hundreds, if not thousands, of light years away. Yeah. Okay. So it's. Uh, it's a little bit. Uh, Hubble dis- was do- when was Hubble doing all his measurements? Oh, you're asking astrophysical questions. I can't answer, my friend. Oh, okay. Anyway, so I forgive him uh, that little little plot hole. But the one thing that I found interesting is, from premise wise, the idea that you need to run around for it's like um, uh, trailblazing in a way that the thought that to make a solar system stable you have to blow up a few of its planets it's just a weird idea in general like where did that come from i mean that's that never a, been that is a weird idea that's never even been repeated in any science fiction story they have it's, to go to star systems to stabilize them so that they'd be it's like terraforming but it's almost like for long-term colonization it's not it's like terraforming but it's like almost like uh solar system terraforming you have to you have to like get rid of the unstable equilibria of of some rogue planets in a solar system to make things like more stable. More stable. Well, you get the you get the feeling that blowing up planets is not necessarily their primary mission. Uh, their pro- I think their primary mission is is sort of a exploratory scout. It's a scout ship. The idea is they're supposed to scout for habitable systems, but it seems like they've just all they're really interested in any longer. And that's one reason I picked that. Other than it's really funny, yeah. the opening sequence right. about not being interested in intelligent life. I think that all they really care about now is blowing stuff up. They've, become, they've just become so disillusioned with their job that all they're really interested in is blowing things up. But I think their general idea was to find habitable places and, and search and maybe find intelligent life and whatnot. 
and report it back. Um, and yeah, the bombing was was a part, but not the sole point of their mission. Maybe it was a uh, like uh, an anti Star Trek sort of uh, take that 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 they had, you know, because um, there was the prime directive that the Star Trek mm-hmm. it's like never what is it never mess with a oh the prime directive yeah it's like some sort of non interference clause with other well societies. and this is just the uh, exact opposite where you interfere not only do you interfere you just blow up everything that uh you know that, yeah but you get a feeling that these guys have gotten pretty sloppy yeah well that blowing up planets seems to be a it's 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 a bit of satire it's it's stupid <laughs> i could understand where you may i mean if you really had enough energy to do these sort of tasks that you might want to stabilize systems you want to inhabit by maybe making some changes to planetary orbits. I mean, if you had the tremendous amounts of energy it would take to do manipulations like that. Yeah, think about that amount of energy. It'd be huge, but I mean, it depends on what your power source is. I think you're better off trying to terraform an existingly stable planet. Well, there's so many planetary systems, it'd be sort of pointless. I think we're arguing... It, our argument for the validity of their mission is almost a pointless exercise. Well, maybe it's it's so sloppy that Carpenter goes like, I don't even want people to even try to take this seriously. So I'm going to make I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to do like the Kessel Run in under ten parsecs yeah. or whatever. This I'm is going to make just bullshit. I'm going to make it obviously bullshit. I'm not going to try to make it jive with reality in any way, shape, or form. The thing about Dark Star that uh, the production and distribution by uh, a much maligned Jack H. Harris Enterprises Incorporated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was sort of a bottom feeder. Yeah, um, was that he didn't quite understand that uh, the film was a comedy. He just thought it was a sci-fi thing. Well, he he thought just, it was like a science fiction movie. and He just was making money. He's just a moneymaker. Right, and... A uh, moneymaker. And so uh, Carpenter and uh, O'Bannon, or maybe it was just Carpenter, snuck into a few of these theaters with the opening run. And, uh, you know, not only were they dismayed to find only about five people in the audience, but they were also dismayed at the fact that nobody was laughing at the funny parts. Well, this movie took so long to make it, and it, and it was so uneven that you can't you can imagine that people were a little confused by it. Let's start kind of with some of the background in the film production of uh, Dark Star. It was a, a originally a student film. Yeah. Um, made by uh, Dan O'Bannon and, and John Carpenter in their old USC days. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a student film that was originally 45 minutes in length. And yeah. then there was some added budget to it. And then it got... Well, they got ex- that funding from that one guy. And that... Was when that uh, Harris? That yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, is that... Because he wanted it to get it up to 90 minutes for a theatrical release. Right. Or close to it. I guess yeah, I he think was, it, he was just doing the calculations. It's a sci-fi movie. People like sci-fi movies. It needs to be an hour and a half, right? And put and another, so put another forty minutes on it. And we'll exactly. And the thing that I the I find interesting is something that uh, that isn't mentioned in any of the Wikipedia stuff or any of the background on this film, mm-hmm. and it's something that our friend Will brought up. Oh yeah, that uh, you aren't technically allowed to take a student film and exploit it for. Uh, production or money making. Well, you know, they talked about that. They talked about that a, a bit on. Uh, oh, you know, I had a different. Disc he did have you. a different DVD. They had a. We had a. They had a, some of the people from the film talking about the USC thing. 
Oh, they did. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember what they mentioned? Well, the idea was that uh, the original student film that uh, John Carpenter just snuck in, or maybe it was Dan O'Bannon, and just took the print. So he made a good argument. He's like, if you, uh, if you go to any fine art school, and uh, let's say you get your fine arts and just painting, and you, when you paint, your paintings, those paintings are yours when you're done with them, are they not? They're not the school's. That's true, yeah. Why, I, I would, if you go to school for film, when you get done working in your medium, why isn't the final product the artists? Why is it the schools? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that doesn't, now that you mention yeah, it. Yeah, it makes no logical sense. I think it's, from what I could tell with the documentaries, it's still the case, but USC just didn't want to make a stink about it. Okay. They knew what happened, yeah. that he went in and took it, but they didn't really care that yeah. much. Okay. But in the end, it doesn't make any sense that the films would be the property of the schools. Other than the only if thing, you go to, if you would, if you are a musician and you know you you do music composing, the compositions you make during your student days don't belong to the school, do they? The only thing that I can make uh, somewhat of an argument for are kind of working proprietary stuff and and things that uh, leverage contract dollars versus you know I guess independent dollars is the fact that you the those things you mentioned, like painting and, and writing and music, are technically not resource leveraged. They're not like like a film, like doing a student film. I'm guessing that the resources are leveraged from uh, the overhead of the school. Like I don't know, you don't go out and buy your own camera, right? You don't go buy your own soundstage. I mean, it's a good point. I mean, how much are they funding these? I mean, I mean, working with oil is expensive. But it seems like whenever I remember it, the only thing you got was like very minimal studio space, and you really need to provide your own. And you bought all your own pigment. Exactly. And you bought all your own campus, and to thousands, thousands of dollars. So for for film school, I'm guessing that that's probably not feasible. So that there's probably uh, existing equipment and uh, resources that are significant that the school has invested in. And that yeah. you just merely use. I guess it's it's just a it's a drawing the line. I guess I mean in the music department, I mean in the art department, you're going to use use the facilities you pay tuition. I'm sure other fees and in any department you're talking about writing. Maybe that's probably the example of it being the least expensive, as far as the school's concerned. Right. But with like music, I mean I know that at least at Western they had the Foreign Arts Center had quite a number of music rooms where people worked in with pianos and all that. I doubt that the university kept the rights to compositions. I guess it's, it's all about drawing a line somewhere. Sure. And that filmmaking is over the line, and all these other things are under it. Uh, I, yeah. Like, I, if, like if you make if you work in an engineering department, and you you make a uh, you and your team make a you know hybrid car. That team doesn't own the hybrid car at the end. The university does. Right. Yeah. So yeah, and I, probably all its and all its proprietary nature it still yeah, owns the car. Yeah. So the the university, in order to sell it, would sell the rights to. Yeah, I just think the line should be drawn on the other side of film, most likely. Right. So uh, I guess um, well, you've, I guess we've kind of uh, meandered through that uh, that rationale for how it could turn into an actual feature. Um, oh yeah. But uh, anyway, and so it had uh, 38 extra minutes added to it, which is strange because I can't tell necessarily where those cuts are. Well, I'm I'm trying to figure out. I mean, you watched the one. How how long? I watched was the theatrical. Which was at what 128 or something? Uh, I can't do the math. 45 plus 38 is what? Uh, it's about 80. 
two or three minutes. Yeah, somewhere around there. Uh, one hour, 23 minutes. And my, my was like one hour. I watched the director's cut. Which like one like, hour and 72, or it was 72 minutes. Yeah, something like that. Was that what it was? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, <laughs> the only thing it didn't make, the only thing it seems like it was stretched out was this long chase scene where, uh. The beach ball? Yeah, where they're, they're talking about that beach ball alien, like the one they talked about. I think it's the same exact one. Uh, Pinback brings it onto the ship so it could be. Was there going to be their mascot? It was going to be their mascot. And so Pinback has to keep it. Then he ends up, literally, there's like a 20-minute segment. Of the elevator? Just, yeah, he's chasing around the chasing around the ship before he kills it. Yeah. And there's that whole incredibly long, hokey elevator scene. The elevator scene was uh, actually filmed horizontally. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised that uh, O'Bannon could keep his body so perpendicular. I think they must have had like some little... Uh, mechanics dolly or something underneath him, like a little plank that he was laying on. It was pretty convincing. I I mean, I was, I mean, it it suspiciously looked like it was on its side, but the way that O'Bannon's feet were moving, he did a really good job of trying, convincing you that it was not the case. Yeah. I was thinking maybe it was done at an angle, but it wasn't. It was done. No, it it had to be done horizontally. He did a pretty good job. So they built uh, basically a a horizontal hallway. Mm -hmm. Kind of tricked it out. With they didn't some, even do a push pull. Yeah, they didn't even do any. Yeah, there's no vertigo going on. And um, I think the scene where he's he's sort of standing there, and there's like a thin little rim, a, a little bulkhead rim. I I think it, it must have all been done horizontally. So he's laying there, and then the uh, beach ball well, the alien. Your shots were done. I'm sure vertically. And the beach ball alien was hassling him. Uh-huh. And uh, he was like precariously standing on the top of this big long oh, elevator yeah, that shaft. Was, that looked a little suspicious. Yeah, because he was balancing almost unbelievably on an incredibly so, narrow platform. Yeah, and I had read this before watching that, so I I knew that it was all filmed horizontally. Yeah, okay. So I think if I hadn't I had been no. cued, I probably would have easily just just a, you know. You would have mentioned something seemed weird, and that you know I was thinking maybe it was at like a forty-five degree angle or something. No, that would have been that would have been really hard to build. It's a lot easier. It would be hard, harder to build it vertically, I think. I oh, mean, what you could do is you could just you could crank it up to thirty degrees or whatever you could, because it wasn't. I mean, depending on the shot, you wouldn't need that much length. True. Yeah. So anyway, this they they filmed it horizontally and uh, did some camera tricks to make it. And look. it ended really hokey with the explosive bolts and then him walking out. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was really super so. He kind of. I have a feeling they shot that after because that seemed like so stretched. It was so, such a long, boring scene. It was. Yeah, it was. I, I watched that and I was like, short movie. "How long was that? Like ten minutes of like the oh, elevator was, scene?" Oh, the elevator scene. Yeah, more than that. It must be like twelve or thirteen minutes. It was long. So there was some of that to sort of stretch it out. I'm guessing that. Yeah, I, I guess that was one of the primary. I don't know if that was original footage. My guess is, considering how short the student film was, that was additional footage. Because, look, you're looking to stretch, make a long gag scene. You don't even have to write any dialogue. That's true. Yeah, that's just true. Have you don't Dan have to. Dan O'Bannon, you know, laugh it up. So, uh, uh. There were some other scenes. I don't know how they stretched it for the, uh, the theatrical release. There was some other shit in there, too, wasn't there? Um. You there, don't know the difference, but tell me, what, what goofy shit was in yours that seemed stretched? Well, uh, goofy shit. I, I think was that the, the, the elevator thing? scene, but you said that was in yours and it was long and tedious as well. because yeah, mine wasn't the th- student film. Mine also had extra, f- it was just cut down from the theatrical. Um, let's see. Uh, John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon re-edited the film into a director's cut, removing such much of the footage shot for the theatrical release and adding new special effects. 
So oh, I don't, really? I don't know. There was some uh, stuff that was added. Like, did you get, uh, oh, Doolittle playing his little uh, uh, glass? No. Okay, so they must have cut that, that out. Was there's worse. a, there's was, this oh, awkward. There was a musical interlude thing. Uh, it's just a, it's just a uh, uh, unnecessary scene where Doolittle, like after they come down off the bridge, that weird sort of bridge where they're like facing each other. That seemed kind of funny. Oh, how it was so tight. Yeah, I, I like that. I thought that was pretty cool. And I loved how that one seat was all blown up next to Pinback. Yeah, the right. Seat, just in the in the periphery. Oh, because that that was where uh, um, Captain said actually. His name, uh, yeah, Captain uh, uh, Powell. Captain Powell died, and yeah. Pinback was upset about having to sit next to it. <laughs> and, uh, and you could see it, but you could only see it at the very edges of the frame. There was just a mass of blackened wires. I don't think I... They never, I they never gave a good that. shot of the seat. It was pretty yeah. funny. I, I'd never noticed that before in my other viewings. I didn't notice it this time, actually, to be serious, to be honest. I, I was sort it. of looking for it a little bit. Uh, so, yeah, Doolittle comes down, and he has these hanging... Uh, jars filled with water and he plays like a tune on them. Oh, okay. So they must have cut that out of the... Uh... And also, there was also a scene where they're hanging out in their bedroom. There's no bedroom scene in the one I saw. Oh. There's also like that prison game where you hit the knife. Mumbly peg. Yeah. That, was yeah, that, that wasn't in mine either. Interesting. I guess there's a real injury in that too, right? The guy really gets his finger. For real. No, No, he does. Oh, he does. When it seems like he hits his finger, yeah. he really does put the knife uh, through his finger. Interesting. It was unscripted. It was in the... Uh, in the, I've watched, I don't know, about half of the... Uh, Theatrical release? Uh, no, no, of the um, uh, documentary. Oh, okay. That was okay. on Oh, uh, oh you did watch the documentary. Yeah, about half of it. I, uh, on my DVD was a incredibly long interview with Alan Dean Foster, who wrote the novelization for Dark Star, which seems extra- incredibly odd that you would try to give this uh film like a full-blown marketing where you're like right, get a novelization going for it and everything yeah, it's short story material but it's it's a great idea well and alan and dean, plus there's lots of fun and lots of funny dialogue alan dean foster's biggest complaint was uh dealing with the beach ball alien he was like well how do i actually uh because he said he, he, you're, there's a, what did he say? He said there's a, there's an extremely big difference between satire and parody. And that's what he was trying to counter with the novelization, at least with the movie, that, that he was trying to treat the bat, he treated the beach ball alien as satire and not parody. Let's, let's just define satire and parody real quick, make sure we're on the same page. I'm probably going to get it wrong. The satire is making a comment on something for humor, and parody, parody is just, Making fun of it? Uh, is parody just making fun without a Yeah, point? like a parody would be like... Uh, we could air- look it up online. Well, it would be like Airplane or Hot Shots Part Two, where it's parodying. <laughs> yeah. you it's know. not making a comment. No, no, it's on, just... On war movies. No. Uh, a satire would be like Starship Troopers. Exactly. So... Uh, okay, let's just go with that. So... so he- what he, is the beach ball parodying or satire? He, he said, "Well, he he said he didn't want to go into parody because he would it would detract from what he was trying to do with the novelization, and novelizations, uh, people read them. I guess I I I think I don't fan. I mean, it seems like a fanboy thing. Why you would ever read? I've read like I remember reading novelizations when I was a kid." Because my parents wouldn't take me to the movie right away, and so I was like begrudgingly, I would like. I read the Gremlins novelization yeah, when I was a how kid. Was it? 
Uh, I remember, like, uh, the thoughts of the gremlins being described, and I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that's really neat. So people like, you know, like... Uh, if like, you really love a story, it seems like a, a novelization could give you a lot more detail. Right, and it's a cash cow, and so Alan Dean Foster's kind of known for that. And uh, I mean, plenty of authors do it. He actually put name on it. He actually novelized a uh, another Dan O'Bannon uh, film, Alien. Oh, he novelized Dan O'Bannon's Alien. And uh, Alan Dean Foster's biggest complaint about novel the novelization of Alien was is that he was never given a picture of the alien. The alien was never described. Oh, he had to. Do, oh no, he had to do it before because Alien. There was a lot of. Production work. There was a lot of rewriting of the script too. I he think. never saw Giger's Alien. Well, was, he never saw the, any costume. They novelized before the films finished. It Apparently, seems like they should always write the novelization afterwards. But of course, that could be a marketing problem because you want everything to hit the market at the same time to get the multiple best multiplication of your advertising dollars. Yeah. So he was given the script. <sighs> he should have got some pre-production stuff. He, that he, thing was in production for a long time. I don't know. They so, throw him some fucking so that's the that's the second time uh, Dan O'Bannon has had thrown uh, Alan Dean Foster a curveball when it came to novelizing one of his films. It might not have been as bad, an Alien, because it's the Alien's so in the dark that you can almost get away with never really describing it. Yeah, I, I guess. Wonder how he described it? I don't. He he, he didn't. He like he I don't. Couldn't. You know, it's the well. You have to. I think you just what, have to let it always be in darkness. You have to almost do that sort of exercise where. Um, you know, like when special effects were a lot more limited, uh, you would make the monster a lot less tangible or a lot less obvious because you didn't have the means to... to, to what you do is you spend a lot of time with reaction shots. So, <gasps> you know, somebody... So maybe that's how, you know, like H.P. Lovecraft is the master of describing nothing. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I mean, every one of his monsters was like, it was too... Shape, ho- shapeless horror. Yeah, the shapeless horror, too horrific to describe. You know, it's like I could be, not believe my eyes. If I would, if I were to describe it, I would go mad. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of that you can play with and stuff. So I don't know, but uh, uh, it'd be the, interesting to read that novelization after you know we've all sort of incorporated the alien. My parents, into our uh, psyches. My, my parents had the novelization. I never read it, but it was sitting on the bookshelf forever. If you go over there, pick it up sometime. Uh, Get it on your Kindle. It's yeah. I can, Grab it. I'd do that before I'd make a trip to the parents to loot an old box in the attic for <laughs> goddamn old books that haven't been read mm, in 30 old years. books crawling with daddy long legs. Uh, Sounds nice. So, uh, anyway, the uh, the alien, um, the, the beach ball alien. Um, and so, I can, that's kind of a good segue to talk about Dan O'Bannon a little bit. Dan O'Bannon, I didn't he realize, is... is one of the reasons that I that I like some of the movies I like with regard to some of my favorite science fiction films. Yeah, I hadn't really ever heard of them before. So I'm thinking about this movie seriously. So Dark Star uh, is basically a prelude. Was a prelude to the Alien script. Oh, and, it's like a <clears throat> the idea of truckers in space. Well, truckers in space, and we talked about this before. Like, yeah. uh, you, you, there's a there's a huge amount of synergy between Dark Star and Alien. Yeah, the crews are very similar. The crews are these kind of basically truckers. Yeah, they're in like Dark low Star. level worker class. And in Alien, they're the same lot. They're yeah. uh, blue collar kind of. Uh, I don't know. Like they're just the they're just the grist for the mill of some corporation. Right. Um, there's an alien on board, and and the alien. <laughs> there's an alien. That's funny. In Dark Star is cheesy and silly. I, did, I and, never thought of comparing the beach ball alien to the Giger. 
But it has some of that, right? It has a little bit of the, uh, like, the you know, the chase in the elevator shaft. You know, it's kind of similar. There's some of that sort of thing. I never thing. thought about it. Oh, boy, that's a, that is a bit of a stretch. Except for the uh, beach ball alien is killed by deflation. Yeah, by the by it. Giger alien has to be flushed out for the For some airlock. reason, they have a anesthetic dart gun on the ship. <laughs> I guess if they they were going to supposed to go check out plans for a new life, it might be nice to have something like that. Assuming the anesthetic works on every alien life form you encounter. <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah. I also but this I don't think this movie wasn't interested in any sort of plausibility. I also liked how uh, the little storeroom that they were keeping the beach ball alien. There was those light creatures. Yeah, it was some other creature. See, you made see that that sort of alludes to the larger mission they had, and they moved away from, they've drifted away from and they're sort of... They've gotten quasi- cynical and just like blow just, it all they've up. Be, they've just become sort of mad. Yeah, mad and disgruntled. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, and you sort of see that madness in those Dan O'Bannon interviews with uh, as Pinback because there's, there's a... Did you have the scene where there's... Some, oh, he... he, he the, he, the log, the personal log? Yeah, and he's actually not Pinback. Page. He's another guy. <laughs> the whole story. Yeah, he takes Pinback's uh, identity, but uh, Pinback, or the character Pinback, um, actually in that little uh, diary claims to be liquid fuel specialist Bill Frug, who accidentally takes Pinback's place on the mission after failing to rescue Pinback from committing suicide by wading into a fuel tank before the mission. Yeah, and remember he says uh, he wanted to be an astronaut, but uh, you have to score like 800 on the aptitude test, and he only scored 40. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, obviously nobody can tell. Nobody cares. And nobody cares. So, uh, And that that character was played uh, by Dan O'Bannon himself. He did did a pretty good job. That was the best character. I mean, other than maybe the coolness of uh, of Doolittle. Yeah, Doolittle was, uh, yeah, he was, he was, uh, he was the surfer, uh, character right he was a surfer character or was yeah, he, yeah. He, was, he was the guy who was in command yeah yeah um so anyway a little bit about dan o'bannon he actually wrote um let's see he had a homeless spell oh this okay so this is sort of interesting oh go for it i haven't read this um, I'm sure. uh dan o'bannon um he uh was he did some technical work on on star wars he did the, he was a computer animator so when the, I assume when they mean computer animator on Star Wars, he did the computer graphics that you would see in the film. Oh, he did the the uh, the dot uh, 3D display of the Death Star rotating. Uh, what are pu- the com- oh, and the computer graphics of the uh, guidance system for launching the uh, torpedoes. I'm thinking that's what he was doing. He was doing both those things. Yeah, he was doing some of that. It was like it was like the what do you call that old? Remember tank. The video game they used like vector line graphics. tracing tempest the old tempest yeah, game yeah yeah it was like it was like a some it was a different type of drawing technique other than the rasterization we're all familiar with now uh, and I forget it used what like, that's it called used like a, I mean it controlled the electron beam by actually drawing the lines instead right. of rastering across right yeah it so, was a uh, it was like a, an oscilloscope type of yeah a, it would actually make the beam make those angles and it could do a bunch of straight lines right I yeah forgot, it, I mean it was sort of a way to get more complicated graphics and rastering was just too much of a memory hog. Uh, so, following Star Wars, he was at, he was attached to the special uh, supervised special effects for Alejandro Jodorowsky's production of Frank Herbert's Dune, and this is. Oh. It, uh, but this fell apart in 1975, yeah. leaving Dan O'Bannon homeless and with no money. Oh no! Um, this is sort of interesting because we've we've touched on Frank Herbert, the production of Frank Herbert's Dune that was that was in pre-production forever in the 70s. Um, 
because there was a lot of huge artists attached to that. Giger was attached to it. Oh, really? Uh, the French artist Mobius. Um, mm. uh, another guy that uh, I actually have a coffee table book of, which was... Um, I can't remember his name. It's sitting on my coffee it was table. Insect-like spaceships. Yeah, what the heck was his name? Uh, anyway, uh, Jodorowsky. Um, apparently, he he did this film that Will recommended called El Topo. El Topo. Which guy? Uh, Jodorowsky. Okay. And El Topo is, I guess, a bizarre hybrid of. Uh, like Mexican, Old West Mexican standoff kind of stuff with uh, myth and fantasy. I, I guess it's just, just out of control. Like the, the film is just crazy. Maybe I have heard It's of called it. El Topo. Well, and you do it. And uh, it's, it was John Lennon's favorite film. Yeah. So a little bit of that. We'll have to uh, smoke some reefer and watch it. So he was going to do Frank Herbert's Dune, but mm-hmm. uh, never – it died in pre-production. They had to bring somebody more stable in to do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so anyway, it left O'Bannon actually homeless. And so um, with his friend Ronald Shusett, who was a, 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 a writing partner that he had for most – a lot. Uh, a huge portion of his career, he was uh, basically sleeping on his couch, and that's when he wrote the screenplay for Alien. Oh. So basically, a homeless guy uh, sitting on somebody's couch wrote wrote the screenplay for Alien. Yeah, it'd be interesting is, to read that screenplay and how close it is to the, uh, the original. Scott I don't know because the really Scott movie is so dark and um, yeah, and so uh, it just seems it's, well. That's really Scott. Has no humor in it. Well, that's really Scott. Yeah, it, it, well, exactly. It's it was, like... There uh, was no humor. I mean, there was some nice banter between the people occasionally. Well, there's... there's, there's, But the... the um, Like, for instance, uh, the whole thing about Mother on Alien. Mm-hmm. We get that here on Dark Star because there's a central computer that uh, has a female's voice. It's, I don't think it's referred to as Mother or anything, but it uh-huh. definitely has a female's voice. It leaves, lives in this kind of like static room on the it's ship. It's a womb-like room. Right. That's similar to Mother, which is obviously a nod to Hal from 2001. It's just where that most of that idea came from. You know, that you, have a, that you have a sentient computer that runs your ship. And be quite honest with you, I think it's, you know, you know I talk a lot about robots but I think that might be humanity's relationship when it really does finally create artificial intelligence that are beyond our ability. We'll treat them like parents. Uh, they'll they'll we'll be mother be the and father. They'll be. We'll be their children. We'll look to them to uh, supervise. And we'll have to. That's true. Well, the things that we'll, we won't be able to. Uh, we'll make life so complicated that we could not possibly understand it. It'll be like when you open the car of a brand new 2012 Toyota Camry and find absolutely nothing in there that you're able to uh, put a wrench to, you know, that'll be kind of the, the point where you'll make a piece of hardware or software so complicated that there's no way to get in there no, and edit you, code or fix it. All you have to do is make a piece of software that's so complicated and have that piece of software Make a piece of software that's really complicated. That's right. And yeah. then you're lost. Then you're done. And then that's when uh, the that's singularity... When over, that's when you hand over the car keys. That's when the singularity happens, uh, yeah. according to uh, modern sci-fi tropes. If Only if we could be so lucky. So Dan O'Bannon, um, he was known as the towel because he spent a lot of his time in his room with pornographic materials and was accustomed to greeting visitors wrapped in a towel. Oh really? Yeah. So he was, you know, he was a uh, he was an unapologetic masturbator, apparently. 
so Dan O'Bannon. That's why I always look so sweaty. Yeah. <laughs> he helped create uh, Heavy Metal, the animated yeah, film Heavy Metal. Yeah, he did a couple of segments in that. And he wrote, uh, yeah, Soft Landing, which is the Corvette reentry uh, bit there at the beginning. And actually, my favorite segment in Heavy Metal, which was uh, B-17. Which oh, I that bomber on. one. That was a freaky segment. That was creepy. That was creepy. Well, you know, I guess he does have that. I mean, <coughs> he's got that darkness. The creepiest part about that little B-17 segment is segment. right after the uh, uh, they get shot up. And is it the pilot? He's going back to the plane, and it's just empty, mm-hmm. and there's just, like, carnage everywhere. And then he goes back to the tail of the plane, and he sees the, whatever that, the Lochnard or whatever that green glowing globe chases him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's that was that's probably my favorite bit out of uh, Heavy Metal by yeah, far. Yeah, that's probably the most artistically uh, um, heavy piece. I, him and another guy uh, scripted Life Force, which I remember seeing back in the 80s, but uh, it was like a vampire apocalyptic kind of alien invasion thing. It was, it, it was unique. I should watch it again. Um, Invaders from Mars, which didn't do too well. He seems like he's getting himself typecast here. And uh, Return of the Living Dead, which Will has recommended to us as well. Hmm. Uh, years um, 1985. And uh, it spawned quite a cult following. Uh, sequels were made of it. I, I haven't seen it, but it's not Dawn of the Dead. It's not. Uh, it's not a Romero thing. It's Return of the Living Dead. Mm. So, um, and then this is what I also he teamed back again up with Shusit in 1990 to uh, make Total Recall. Oh yeah. So and then he also did uh, co- he has a co-writing credit for the film Screamers. Yeah, yeah, that's so a classic. Some of the some of the common threads here. Is uh, is the Philip K. Dick adaptations yeah, yeah. and the yeah. successful ones like yeah. Total Recall and Screamers, yeah. which were extremely, I thought, extremely effective. They're film. probably the best adaptations. Those two. And uh, I love how the <laughs> when the, the the remake of Total Recall came uh, out, people uh, said it's not as cerebral as the last one. I said the last one cut the cerebral down to almost nothing from the short story. Correct. Can you they, imagine? They cut even more of it out. Could you imagine? I mean, I, at least, at least the Schwarzenegger version left it up in the air whether or not reality was reality. They totally removed that possibility in the new movie. Calling, uh, calling uh, an Arnold Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger movie cerebral. Calling is cerebral Total and- Recall cerebral. You can watch it just. I mean, most people watch that as just an action movie. You only get cerebral after a couple of watching, and you're familiar with the tropes that Dick always marches out. Well, what they did in the new, without going on too much of a tangent, what they did in the new Total Recall is they got rid of Mars, which uh, there, there, there's no Mars. So instead, what they did was they, they, there's like Britain and Australia, and they're connected by a big hole through the Earth, and a giant elevator that separates. That's not the story, is it? Is it? No, no, it's never. No, there was actually a, a Mars reference in the original. Uh, Philip K. Dick short story, which actually didn't take place on Mars, but yeah. referenced Mars. No, this is to get the space feel. They just drop through the center of the Earth down to Australia on the other side of the planet, and that's like supposed to be sort of the otherworldly Mars type of uh, environment. I think they missed it. I'm guessing they missed it by a stretch. So, um, but back to uh, Dark Star. Um, one thing that I found interesting is the, the uh, Captain Powell is on ice oh, in the great. hold of the ship. What a great fucking idea. Well, the idea came from a Philip K. Dick uh, book I've read called Ubik. Oh, really? And Ubik, in Ubik, book. there's uh, a technology where if you die, mm-hmm. and you're not 
you're kind of freshly dead. You're not completely, you know, uh, decayed, moldered. Um, they can kind of put you on stasis or put you on ice, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, your your soul is um, sort of this ephemeral ghost in the machine, and it's kept in like some sort of a storage facility in Switzerland. And so it's still attached to your flesh. I don't in Ubik. Yeah, it, it's it's like yeah, it's it's exactly like kind of the you're on ice and okay. and and so you have this system that's kind of like a uh, I guess for lack of a better analogy, sort of like a uh, computer emulator or some kind of uh, some sort of interface device that allows you to have a physical conversation with the dead. The dead, because <coughs> so, they haven't. They've just their life has been put on like ultra pause. Right. And yeah. Exactly. So play every once in a while. So it's it's a it's a weird limbo thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the problem is, is in all Philip K. Dick stories, um, it's the future, which is never utopic because uh, the technology is always fucked up and breaking down. So you'll go visit like a, a dead family member and try to have a conversation. Yeah. And like other spirits or other dead people will butt into the conversation, oh. have to be shooed away. <laughs> um, but the way That's that great. they describe talking in Ubik talking to the dead is uh was used by dan o'bannon for when they're talking to powell and powell kind of he fades and he like he gets yeah. easily distracted and you know he's not dead but he's not all there he's not all there yeah. so that was uh, a direct uh use of he lifted uh, that strata ubik yeah which i and it's funny because i'm reading a, a a book now called revelation space by uh alistair reynolds mm. it was written in 2000 and um, it's just sort of coincidence, but uh, part of that story is that they have a captain on ice in this giant ship, and he is, uh, like, they turn him up a few degrees, and then he, they're able to talk to him through some kind of a computer system, <clears throat> which is almost exactly like Dark Star. Yeah. So whether it came from there or was uh, inspired so, by yeah, that, you, it's sort of you, funny. It's a great idea for a society. You take your great minds and, and you just piece them out you just sip on them forever yeah you don't you know it's you don't overuse idea. them you just because yeah. you'll like kind of burn them out like a light bulb or yeah. something so That's you just kind of turn idea. them on a little bit that'd be a wonderful idea for society so um which so that's kind of why i i went into uh i wanted to talk about dan o'bannon because i didn't realize that he's responsible for some of my favorite uh uh like sci-fi fantasy films yeah, we definitely in the past 20 years. Revisit O'Bannon. We've already mentioned like three or four movies we should do. Oh yeah, total I mean Total Recall Screamers which I really liked, which I thought was an effective adaptation of Philip K Dick's uh, Second yeah. Variety. I thought that was a really good. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's probably the would be considered the best Dick adaptation. Well, I would argue that Link Letter is uh uh Scanner Darkly cuz it's you didn't like it. Yeah. You're, you're you're scowling. All yeah, right. I, I didn't like I didn't like the way Linklater presented it. I didn't like his rotoscope choice. Uh, all right, well, teach their own. Yep. Uh, it, Dan O'Bannon died in uh, actually recently in 2009 from Crohn's disease, which I didn't know you could die from. I thought it was just a chronic condition. Sounds apparently. pretty nasty. He had a bunch of re bowel resections and stuff. And so uh, this is this is interesting. O'Bannon credits his experience with Crohn's disease for inspiring inspiring the chest bursting chest bursting scene from alien oh like something else inside you eat from inside <laughs> yeah out. so yeah. i thought that was kind of a uh, i can see that interesting i saw this thing on uh, online apparently you can get these t-shirts that have more or less kind of like a, a little 
green screen pattern on them. Have you seen this? Yeah, it's like the altered. It's like the augmented reality. It has a little. It has a little like one of those square uh, barcode things. Right. And so what you do is you download the app on your phone, mm-hmm. and then you hit like like some kind of play or some yeah. kind of. And then this guy, so he had on his phone, and he was looking through his phone on the camera at his buddy's T-shirt. And then the alien popped out it's of his nice. chest. pretty nice. Pretty convincing. It looked pretty good. I think augmented reality, I mean, you know, Google's doing this with the Google Glasses. I think that's probably a direction that a lot of this stuff's going to go in in the future. You're yeah. Really taking, taking, putting a digital overlay on the real world. Right. I think that might be in the next 10 years where we see most of these. So it'd be kind of cool because if everybody were uh, augmented reality glasses, then you, it would almost be like they live. The movie, uh, the other Carpenter movie that we need to do. Well, you could you do a They Live app. It turns, it well, turns they, they have to put on the glasses, right, to see reality. Oh, yeah, yeah. You'd have to put on another pair of glasses that subtracted. Yeah. We, well, I think that uh, we kind of concentrated. Head, I got to head down to the patent office. <laughs> We've kind of concentrated here on Dan O'Bannon more than we have John Carpenter, and well, I kind of want to leave. To be quite honest with you, this movie's more about Dan O'Bannon than John. I kind of think it is. I, the, the, the filmmaking, the John Carpenter, um, I guess. I mean, it has John Carpenter's signature. He, John Carpenter did do the music, which is something that Carpenter did. He do that country song. He did. They did do that. That's his own composition? It's, um, let's see here. That's a great song. The about? theme song played during the opening and closing credits, Benson, Arizona. The yeah. music was written by John Carpenter and the lyrics by Bill Taylor concerning a person who travels the galaxy at light speed and misses their beloved back back on Earth. So, yeah, it was a, a great song. inspired is, country and western song. It was a great song. song. <laughs> I didn't know he's such a talented musician. He did, like, um, he except other, for... He brings the, other people in to do his movie, though. Uh... He doesn't well, do the sound on his own movies. Well, the thing soundtrack was done by Ennio Morricone. Yeah. Um, but like uh, Big Trouble in Little China, which is a favorite of mine. Uh-huh. Well, that's another great uh, one. Uh, Escape from New York. Mm. All that synth stuff is all John Carpenter. Oh, really? Yeah. What a talented musician. That's yeah, he does. Uh, and he, it's sort of interesting because you rarely have directors doing their own soundtracks. And so there's a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I mean, it seems like when you have a great ear you don't have a great eye yeah at the same time so it's interesting because uh the music in carpenter films like halloween mm-hmm. has great great synthesized that's his yeah that's him okay. is that it adds a uh um like an emotional connection that probably isn't there for most composers when it comes to film you know because they have to like the the emotional crescendos and stuff or imitated but they're not exactly the director's vision it's close but not exactly there so it's kind of interesting yeah well we've talked a lot about the flavors of this film i mean in the end is, is this a good film uh, it's got some great ideas <laughs> it's got some fun but i would it would be much better as a as like a 30 minute short It'd well be, that was its original intention yeah, obviously because no reason it was a this film, film. Needs to be an hour and a half and i don't think adding more bullshit to it helps at all i think it's a good film because it introduces some interesting ideas oh, it has some great it has some great ideas the, I mean, the whole thing about various places and you can see a couple of people that made their mark on film history right right at the get-go two in one shot yeah and O'Bannon, significant film history o'bannon and carpenter exactly so that's pretty impressive it is impressive but um, um i wonder what people at the time thought about it well i think we already mentioned that they thought they were they were expecting a uh kind of a straight-up science fiction movie and they got a kind of a black comedy instead yeah well that was just the marketing shtick 
Because well, they wanted to try to make some money out of this film. And that was all. Right. I don't think Carpenter has any great fondness for this film. Uh, Other I think... Other than it's sort of... A, I mean, I don't think he thinks it's a, a great film. Um, it's more of an interesting early work. It's well, like I would if say... if you're a good artist, going back and seeing some of your early stuff where you're working some of the ideas through well, it. I see, guess you've got to have sort of a critical eye to that the, sort of material. The thing is with science fiction films, I always kind of judge them on a different... Uh, um, uh, sort of a different level is like you can pass as a, a a cheap science fiction movie as long as the science fiction's good in my opinion. <laughs> like we reviewed Primer, Primer's a, a, brings up a lot of interesting ideas. Mm. Is is a, is a good sound science fiction film, but it's done on the cheap. Yeah. So Dark Star, I think, since it's obviously hokey <laughs> and cheap. <laughs> well, the thing is with Primer, it knew its budget was going to be small, so it made it easy on itself, keeping any special effects to an absolute minimum or any props. Well, this movie is it's on a spaceship in space. Well, I know, except for you have <laughs> things like uh, Talby's star suit has like styrofoam packing material for the backpack uh, and a muffin tray for the uh, chest <laughs> yeah, console. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, they had one helmet that really fit. Uh, it fit uh, uh, the the space helmet fit uh, the, oh, what was his name again, um, Doolittle really well, but it felt Talby really poorly. Yeah, it was weird. It had like that little half dome that was like. Yeah, it was like, a, well, Talby, you could barely see out of it, <laughs> right. but uh, Doolittle had a longer neck, and so it was more appropriate for him. Uh, the spacesuits uh, were made to resemble the spacesuit of the Mattel action figure, Major Matt Mason, hmm. uh, which was used in slightly modified form as the miniature for uh, the effect shot. <laughs> uh, found found stuff. That's a great... Well, you got to cut the corners where you can. So, uh, but I think, um, like, there's some things in here uh, that I think make it an effective <coughs> science fiction film. It's sort of the existential nature of the whole film is kind of interesting because of the... Uh, yeah, we haven't even talked about the bombs. And the bombs... I mean, you, you think about, if you watch this the first time, what's the first thing you're going to talk about? The sentient bombs. The sentient bombs. And it's interesting because... Oh, man. Um, we're at 50 minutes and we, we're just getting to the sentient bombs. Well, we can, can you imagine that? The sentient no, let's talk about them. Um, the sentient bombs. There's Bomb 19 and Bomb 20, who actually have two different voices. Yeah. Bomb 19's uh, voiced by Alan Charitz, and Bomb 20 is by Adam Beckenbaugh. Mm-hmm. So they actually had two different people. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, they had different personalities, too. So, basically, the plot. Let's just talk. There is a plot to the film. Yeah, this is the core 30-minute plot. The, the, the plot is is uh, they go through an asteroid storm in, in relativistic space, which seems... And you don't see that in the director's cut. They don't set up where the malfunction came from. Really? No. Well, besides an asteroid storm in relativistic space being Look, implausible... The, the ship's falling apart. Killed the <coughs> okay. killed the captain. They lost all their toilet paper when their sentient <laughs> their sentient uh, cargo bay decided to kill and, itself. And what's and their sleeping chambers are like uh, like got like uh, corrupted or they have to sleep in a storeroom, right? Oh, and, but it's not even in the director's cut, so it's not in the short either. Okay. Um, so okay, so but the communication laser to the bomb becomes corrupted. Uh-huh. In the in the in in the theatrical, it's in an my asteroid storm. Too. I don't know about the short. Uh, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. So um, they're having problems communicating to the bomb. Yeah. And so uh, the bomb uh, uh, is deployed and won't release 
but is going to go off anyway. Yeah. And so they have to, Doolittle has to go outside and convince the bomb. Yeah. Using some sort of metaphysical argument. Cartesian doubt. I actually looked this up this morning. Is that an actual thing? Cartesian doubt, and I don't have any sort of pronoun on it, but Cartesian doubt is a uh, an exercise where you um, basically doubt everything perception-wise and then slowly kind of build up what you do know. Mm-hmm. From, like, so let's just assume that <laughs> you can't take anything for granted, like all your senses. You can't take your senses for granted. So, because those can be tricked and fooled. And so, what do you have to rely on for existence? And uh, well, it's yourself. So, you're, th- you're talking from a perfect, perfect logic standpoint. Well, and the whole uh, Descartes or Cartesian uh, line, I, I think, therefore I am, came out of this whole Cartesian doubt thing. So, he goes through this exercise uh, with the bomb and goes through these Cartesian doubt sort of philosophical questions and then convinces the bomb that the bomb doesn't really know anything because it can only you know it it, it could be being lied to through all its sensors and 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 that so it has to go think about things (laughs) so it retracts into the the bomb bay goes through some sort of uh metaphysical awakening Uh, and basically from de novo splurts out the few 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 lines of Genesis. Genesis and and thinks of itself as a god, and yeah. then it goes, "Let there be light," and then just <laughs> blows the spaceship apart. <laughs> and so then you have uh, Doolittle and um, Talby, and Talby they're, is through so- various fuck ups. They're both outside of the ship, <laughs> and Talby is sort of like this. <laughs> and they survive the blast. He's like this stoner who hangs out up in an egg chair. In I the don't little- think he's a stoner. He's sort of a, I don't I think know. He's just spaced out. Just a, he's, got, he's got space madness. Space he's got Pandorum. He's got Pandorum. He's got a little crazy, like all of them. And so they're kind of floating outside the ship because uh, Talby was trying to fix the, the the communication laser. So he was in a spacesuit. And yeah. then Doolittle had to go outside and talk, talk to, to the, the bomb. bomb. Well, I had to talk to him in a spacesuit. I don't really know. Yeah. I don't um, know. And so they get separated. And uh, then um, Talby becomes absorbed by the. Uh, Phoenix asteroids, yeah. and uh, that circle the universe every some unreasonable. Yeah, yeah, of years. like anything circles the universe because yeah. everything circles. Kurt thought this universe will not even exist for a total of one trillion. Yeah, years. it doesn't really matter. And then uh, <laughs> Doolittle surfs because he's an old surfer, surfs on a piece of wreckage into the atmosphere, and dies, and assumedly dies. Well, you see him blow up. He goes, "Oh yeah." You see him blow oh, up. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that sort of static perspective because yeah. they're just moving mats across the screen. <laughs> the mat work was it worked out all right. So uh, I don't know. And was there anything more to talk about the bomb? I mean, the bomb. No, we could go into sort I of. I mean, the- that's that's probably what you notice at first. But we were talking about the larger picture, how it affects film and and the people involved in the film. Uh, but that's sort of that's sort of the fun part about the film. Well, I mean, is, is the people the idea of them being out despondent in deep space in an and, existential milieu and dealing with some sentient computers it's kind of well it's 2001 right i mean that's sort of the whole idea behind uh yeah, you but know. they have even more pedestrian problems like to the toilet paper problem with the yeah. storage bay which i think to me it, to me seems a lot more philip k dickian because <laughs> like i mentioned before philip k dick if you read a philip k dick novel they um the ones that take place in the future with all kinds of crazy inventive technology the problem is is that technology never works really 
correctly. We always assume well, that's, that's my wireless printer. Why I can't print out the last right. So days. everybody, you know, there's this whole Jetsons idea that you know, as we get further in the future, machines will do more for us and we'll have more leisure time. Which we, is, and that's been true. I mean, you can dog it, but but go ahead. Well, we spend an inordinate amount of time fixing. We, what the, else are we going to do with our time? Good point. But uh, things are always breaking down, and the future is always in this dysfunctional state of new technology that we always have to wrestle with. I mean... Hey, look, I'd, be, I'd rather go down and fix the blower fan, which I did about six months ago on my dryer, than be hanging my clothes outside of the line all the time. I understood. Understood. But but we And we take for granted the, the, the technology that does work flawlessly every day like uh you know like i yeah like a sewer drain like a pipe oh, never mind slight All right. incline. okay so that, that, that it's <laughs> technology baby and every once in a while you got to pay some guy a few thousand dollars uh, all right so so uh, you know things like a toaster things <laughs> like you know th- not necessarily like a uh i don't know look even the stupid technology breaks I guess. And so, um, but Philip K. Dick were always slaves to shit breaking down all the time. That's kind of like part of his. Uh-huh. And so it makes uh, makes for a kind of almost a farcical comedy. Like the whole Ubik scene I was just describing. You know, they have this fantastical piece of magical technology, but yet, you know, it's not really working. That, it still has problems. It's not working that great. Well, and that's always the case. It's I just, know, but it's you, just never, disorder you never. Itself into the you system. never get that a lot in science fiction. You get more of the utopia treatment. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, so. yeah, it's too bad. It's it's a it's a bummer when they get make it too clean. Exactly. I mean, it's possible. Maybe if you really had good sentience, artificial sentience beings to overtake all this, maybe you really could. Things make that it fix work themselves, right. or just have something that fix something else. You would never have to worry about it. You make it make a device smarter than you, and just just make everything work, so I can sit around here and beat off all the time. You know, <laughs> we don't really have machines that fix themselves, do we? We oh, like, well, well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, just imagine cars these days. I mean, you're just back in the 60s and 70s. You had to take your car and get it tuned up all the time because they had to check the timing. They had to adjust right. the valves. Right now, your computer goes, your car goes 200,000 miles because it adjusts all those things automatically. It basically tunes itself constantly. Okay. Because it, it controls all the But it's timing. not like reforming metal or, or doing any... Uh, well, how different is having some guy, I mean, other than the cost, having some guy have to go in there and rebore out your cylinders versus having to take it into your mechanic all the time to adjust the timing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They do fix themselves. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. Look how, how easy it is to set up a computer. Well, Remember all that true. bullshit? You had to get the drivers. You had to deal Uh-oh. with the extended memory. You had like true. four different boot disks depending on what programming. This is just, this is using a fucking 32-bit 386. You still had to do that. And now, you're pissed. I'm pissed because some fucking driver won't load automatically. All right, I think oh, I think you're turning me around on this one. I, I take back everything I said. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, so we're what what are we getting at here? Well, I'm just I'm just wondering. And we've talked about this mostly in hindsight of these great people. I'm just wondering what Ebert said at the moment it came out. All right, let's listen to the Ebert review. <laughs> Well, in fact, Ebert didn't review it when it came out. He reviewed it four years later after it had uh, become a little bit of a cult classic. And he looks back on it, but strangely enough, he says very little about it. He gives it three stars, 
which right. usually is for a good film. Uh, I'll just read the first paragraph here. Dark Star is one of the damnedest science fiction movies I've ever seen. A berserk combination of space opera, intelligent bombs, and beach balls from other worlds. And he talks about its checkered history, as he calls it. Uh, then he goes, you know, he talks a little bit more about how it came into being, which we've covered here in detail. And, and then he just goes and uh, summarizes the plot. Oh, he does that, much. yeah. Okay. And um, it's not particularly interesting. And so basically he sums it up in the last paragraph. This is a fun movie. <laughs> and okay. a bright and intelligent one. All right. uh, and he says it bears few signs of having been made for a low budget. I don't know about that. And he says the special effects are reasonably slick. <laughs> reasonably this is, this slick. This is 1980. Well. He's writing this. It's a, he does say something I think is, is important, and we talked about it a little bit, but not specifically. Uh, it has a mercifully low-key comic approach. Many uh, satiric comedies by young folk makers are frantic and overwrought, but this one is wry, laid back, and fond of its situations. Okay. And then he, then he says there's a similar to a movie I've heard about passing called Hardware Wars. I remember Munz was interested in. Oh. He says, and on the same program is Hardware Wars. Oh, he must be talking about where he watched it. Okay. Oh, I see. He's not making a, a similarity. He's just saying he watched Hardware Wars at the same time. Oh, all right. Because he watched it at some... I've seen Hardware Wars. Is it good? Uh, no, it's it's like a... It's just... Well, okay. I mean, it's... It's a, it's one it's of like the a, first spoofs or parodies, as we were talking about parodies of Star of, Wars. Of Star Wars, it's and basically, it was, it's basically like really proto uh, robot chicken sort of stuff. Uh, but with live actors and and oh. all the uh, all the uh, the the model work is done with actual hardware. So like there's toasters flying in from, uh, you know, and then there's like a waffle iron is like the Death Star, yeah. and you know. Well, he's not saying there's any similar. He just say he saw it at the same time. Oh, it's just okay. the last. Right. But he does he does talk about the relaxed humor. It does it is pretty relaxed and sort of. I can see where he thought it was uh, more mature than expected from these two filmmakers. Well, it's 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 evenly paced. It doesn't. Uh, yeah, it's not frantic. It doesn't uh, go overboard. Doesn't try to um, except maybe that one scene with the alien. Yeah, but even that's. Uh, you but, know. but the the idea of these guys, I don't know. It seemed, they seem to handle themselves. It's not too. It's not too wacky. No, it's not. It's not wacky. There's uh, the wackiness is there, but the characters don't. I think it's not, because they're, they're, not, they're not. They're not. They're not like clowns. These characters. I think they're too despondent to be yeah, clowns. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, uh, Pinback's uh, pathetic stabs at practical jokes are, uh, you know, like what was he puts on the uh, those? Oh, you didn't see that scene, did you? Because the, the the bedroom scene where they're sitting in their bunks, mm-hmm. and uh, Pinback puts on the uh, spring eyes, like he puts on the glasses mm-hmm. that has the eyeballs, and he stares at Doolittle, and Doolittle shoes him away, and um, <laughs> and then. Or is it Doolittle or the other guy? I forget the other guy's name. The uh, the the guy with the mustache. But yeah, then, the guy with the big then he like pulls out a rubber chicken and like holds it in front of uh, Doolittle, and Doolittle just gets pissed off and storms out of the uh, the room at him and stuff. And so, yeah, yeah um, or uh, the scene with the gun where uh, Pinback fu- is sunning. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> or and then there's uh, there's uh, there's the scene at the end where. Uh, Powell goes floating through space. Oh, an he was cube. always a lucky one. Yeah, <laughs> and he's like kind of babbling. Yeah. You know, he's still babbling as he's like, wah, 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 you know. So there's uh, those kind of things that aren't—they're um, not over the top, but, but they fun. are. 
but they are fun. Yeah. That gives it some... So, some, maybe not the most insightful review ever written by Robert. So it looks like he was trying to meet a deadline on that one. Probably. So, uh, well, let's let's talk about, I guess, here near the end. Why... Okay, why is this movie such a cult classic? Other than, is it just because of the people involved went on to do great things or better, more, uh, like, amplified versions of this? I don't, you know, I don't so. think, uh, hello? I don't think that um, they're, like, Carpenter's other movies are amplified versions of this. None of their other, other movies have this sort of wryness in the same degree. Um, Carpenter has quite a bit of humor in his films. Yeah. Uh, Dan O'Bannon, I mean, I... I yeah, maybe you know, him. Maybe not so much. I, don't know, uh, I think this... I, you know, I guess I was saying maybe this movie's a bit uneven, but I think for what it does, it really does stand on its own, even though it was cheaply made. Yeah. I think some, some of the characters and the ideas, I, I don't think... I don't think it has its own merits. And plus, it has sort of a low-budget feel, which is always good for cult films. Yeah, it, it, it's really it's really free from any sort of uh, input from uh, publishers. Yeah, right. It's uh, it doesn't. It's other than some of the Harris injections of. Uh, yeah, but I think they, he was pretty hands off. He just wanted some length. Um, yeah, he just wanted some length, and he wanted to you know make some money off of it, which you can I guess respect to a certain degree. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, we're still talking about it. Um, I mean, if these if these filmmakers went to do nothing in the future. We probably wouldn't have seen it. It might still be a cult movie. But then again, it probably wouldn't have been any good if it, somebody else did it. It probably wouldn't because have been. Because of the innate talent of O'Bannon and Carpenter. Yeah. Yeah, and I just, the whole thing that surprised me was just O'Bannon's ties to Alien, which is one of the greatest mm. science fiction films ever yeah, made. I was not aware of that until what, looking and doing some research. And, and, and how close the, the characters kind of, the you know, the idea of the characters... You know some of the the similar gimmicks in in the ship, uh, like there's even a scene where they're trying to get a hold of Earth and they have to get there's like a McMurdo, Antarctica like transponder that they're communicating with or yeah, something. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's where. And if you watch the beginning of Alien when they're trying to make contact with Earth, you know uh, you hear Ripley going uh, Antarctic traffic control, Antarctic traffic control. <laughs> like there's a reference to Antarctica being like sort of the 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 traffic control for. Uh, all spacefaring, hmm. you know, yeah. ships yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah. So there's some of that stuff that yeah. you know there's that some neat echoes. The this echoes is, this is the beginning. This is when it was the echo was spoken. And while we lampooned the beach ball scene, I remember as a kid I saw Dark Star, yeah. and it it kind of it. I think it was because it was so absurd it freaked me out a little mm-hmm. bit. Like, mm-hmm. I, well, I love you know what they do with his hands. His hands are actual hands of somebody behind the beach. It ball was actually a prop from another movie they found. <laughs> Oh really? Yeah, I think so. And then clicking the floor, like yeah. that's how it communicates its impatience. Like, chick, 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 so chick, when chick, I was a kid, uh, you know, I had beach balls, and yeah. uh, thinking of a beach ball as some kind of formidable alien that was uh, kind of puckish but malign at the same time, like the beach ball is, you know, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. So I could see a little bit of that. So he, you know, obviously turned that up a notch for the alien film. And no, definitely, definitely worth a watch. And I, I, th- I'd probably recommend the director's cut okay all right uh i think what we should do is we should do another carpenter film i know we don't we haven't been going back to directors we've covered. yeah but which carpenter film? i don't know yeah, sort maybe of, i'm sort of I, I might just go see that the lovecraftian one on my own so uh yeah if, if good opportunity to leave a comment to our listeners you know you could uh 
What is your favorite Carpenter film? Yeah, Queen First. All, you know, I don't know, ten of you, whoever's listening. (laughs) It's not that bad. We have more listeners than that. On a good day. Uh, so anyway, uh, I redone. We got anything else? I don't have anything Star? else to say about Dark Star. Okay. Uh, next week we're going to be doing, uh, I don't know who directed it actually, but Me neither. Uh, it's going to be the old, I, I, I don't even know the date of it. The original Rollerball, not the, uh, whenever that, the new shitty version was made that had absolutely nothing to do with the original. Don't even know there was a new version. So, because we had a conversation this Is morning. Is Roller Girl in it from Boogie Nights? That'd be hot. No, I think they were on rollerblades. I think they had oh. to update it to rollerblades. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, you and I were having a conversation this morning about uh, proxy wars in the future and what those will look like. And so this is probably uh, yeah. rollerball addresses that to a certain extent. And so it's maybe even more relevant than uh, it was when it was originally made. So It's a prescient film, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's a James Caan film. It's uh, uh, Anyway, I think there's a computer that talks to him in that film, too, so... Hmm. A little bit more of that. Big in the 70s, apparently. That whole notion. Hmm. Okay. Okay, until next week, and we will make sure it's next week. We promise it's it'll be next week, not the week after next. But uh, See you the week after next. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. My heart is once again my soul. We touched, we did, you know, we did. No more teasing now. Dark star. I see you in the morning, dark star, sleeping next to me.